We'd like to welcome you this morning. If you're new here, I'm Dan Burmeister from the lead pastor here at LCC. Um, I want to introduce somebody. This is my dad here, H.F. Burmeister, Henry Frank Burmeister. I got my middle name from him, Daniel Frank Burmeister. My dad left us a little over two years ago to be with Jesus, and I think about him often. He had this distinct laugh. It was like a breathy laugh, like a <laughs> whenever he would laugh. Sometimes that comes out of my mouth, and my family will say, you sound like Papa. It's because I got it from him. I inherited other things from him, I think, too. I tell really bad jokes. I mean, they are, they are horrible. And I, I'm proud of them, though, as my dad was before me. Um, I'm antsy. Like, I find myself, like, sometimes my knee's gone, you know? Just like my dad, he would be antsy. Um, I noticed something about 10 years ago. My hair, which was kind of down to here, it started to travel north up my head, making a journey to take the shape of my father before me, as you can see on the screen there. And there's nothing I can do about it, and those who come after me will inherit that as well. So make sure you know that. So as human beings, right, we're pre-wired with, with different traits, right? They come, they're unique to our family line. But beyond that, we, we have things inside us that are pre-wired that are universal to us all, to every human being. God has placed things inside of us that we all share, and we're going to talk about one of them today. We're going to really dig into it the next three weeks. Something that God has, has put into us, it's been designed by him, it's universal, it's the deep, deep desire to worship. We were designed to worship. This morning, we're going to, we're going to talk about what worship is. Next week, we're going to look at how the reach of worship, how it goes beyond our Sunday morning box, like the one hour that we think worship is. And then in the third week, we're going to look at what the Bible says about worshiping together and how we're supposed to worship together as a body. So that's coming up the next three weeks. So you're ready to talk about worship? All right. Well, let's jump in then. So what is worship? What do you think of when you think of that word worship? For most of us, it's probably associated with what we just did here a couple minutes ago, right? It's the, it's the singing, it's the band, it's the instruments, it's the experience, the mood, the atmosphere that we have here. So we hear phrases like, man, worship was good this morning, and we think about that corporate experience that we share together. We also tend to think of location, right? This here is where worship happens the auditorium at LCC, we go to worship there each week. And that's true, we do. We come here to worship together. We come here to, to sing together. But, but that's only an aspect of worship. There's so much more to it today. So we're going to start with kind of a definition that we're going to use throughout this series of worship. Worship is the inevitable bowing down and ascribing highest value to someone or something. Let me say that again. Worship is the inevitable bowing down and ascribing highest value to someone or something. It's, it's the treasuring of someone or something above all things. And every human being, whether they acknowledge God or not, is engaged in worship on some level. We are looking to that highest value, to, to ascribe highest value and worth and then to bow down to it. Speaker and author Lamar Boschman writes, when anthropologists study a civilization, they often examine what the people in that culture worshipped, 
Worship is an integral part of every culture, from the Aztec Indians to the East Indians, from the Africans to the Eskimos. Everyone on earth bows down, honors, or serves someone or something. It can be a statue. It can be a witch doctor. It can be power, wealth, an institution, an idea, a fantasy, a god, or Jesus. Romeo worshiped Juliet. Julius Caesar worshiped his throne. An NBA star may worship basketball, and in turn, his fans may worship him. But make no mistake about it, you have the desire and instinct to worship because your creator wired you to be a worshiper. So it's just, it's just instinctual to us. We long for that which moves us, that which captivates us, that which is greater or grander or larger than life. We want to bow down and ascribe value to that thing. It's about time for theme parks to open. I think they probably already have right this year. And anybody, any coaster fans here, like diehard roller coaster fans? Okay. Well, every year, right, there's the battle that happens. It's, it's like, well, who's got the fastest? Who's got the tallest? According to my research, it's, it's, it's uh, the King of Ka in Six Flags, New Jersey. Look at that hill, 456 feet high in the back. Why are we drawn to the tallest and the fastest? Is 400 feet not enough? Why do we keep looking to the greatest? We watch the Olympics every couple of years, and we are just captivated by those who exceed. They go to the next level, to the highest level. We applaud them. They're, they're, they just captivate us. We watch singing competitions, don't we? To see who comes out on top, who's going to be best. Last night, if you stayed up late, you watched LeBron James again, once again, score the last basket and win. And we just are in awe of that he keeps doing this. When we see excellence in something that's made or in an accomplishment, we're just drawn to applaud or to exalt that. It, it happens at a stadium, right? 20 minutes from here, every Saturday starting in August. There's applause that goes out and rings out in the stadium. Question to think about, how do we just instinctively know that some things are more worthy of worship than others? How do we know that beauty and value and worth exist? It's because we were made and designed to seek that. Now, for many of us, creation, man, creation brings out worship. We look at creation, we are in awe of something greater, our God, right? So we look at the ocean and we're like, oh man, we love the ocean. We're drawn to it. Or we travel great distances to see creation, see the mountains. It's like what people call it a spiritual experience, right? I remember our 20-year anniversary, Lara and I went to, to, um, to Banff in Canada, and we had seen pictures before of the Chateau Lake Louise. I can say that well, can I? And this, this beautiful sight. And when we got there, I'll show you a picture of it. Here we are. The picture does not do it justice, though. I'm telling you, when we walked around that corner and we saw that sight, it's almost like you wanted to drop everything and just, oh my gosh, that is fantastic. That is amazing. God is a creator, an amazing creator. So we're drawn to that. It's inevitable. Now, the Bible tells us that we weren't just created to worship anything, but that our worship was to be directed toward the one who made us. We were made for his glory, for his worship, to bow down and to assign highest value to him, to say yes to God above all things. Isaiah 43, 
Verse 7 says, bring all who claim me as their God, for I have made them for my glory. I've made them for my glory. It was I who created them. Colossians 1.16 talks about Christ. It says, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and what? For him. We were made for his pleasure. And Louis Giglio writes in his book, The Air I Breathe, listen, you've been created by God, and if that wasn't enough, you've also been created for him. As a result, there's an internal homing device riveted deep within your soul that perpetually longs for your maker. Stamped in God's image, we know that there's something we attach to, something we fit with, someone we belong to, somewhere, somewhere called home. We arrive in this world as objects of divine affection, miraculous receptors designed to bring him pleasure. He's like pre-wired, Ecclesiastes says, he's pre-wired eternity into our hearts and to seek him. So our worship of him is to be the highest priority in our life. But worship is also our biggest problem. Because though we were created to worship an, an infinitely beautiful God, I mean, an, an eternally glorious being, we often make an exchange for something that's far lesser, and we turn our worship to that. And that's because sin has ruined and redirected our worship as people. You know, I love my wife, man. She is the love of my life. I, I think about her all the time. I long to be where she is up there in that section over there. And every once in a while, man, the planets align and we get to go out on a real date. And you know, when we go out, it is my intention that she be the thing of highest value, right? We, so we'll go out, maybe we'll perhaps we'll go to a restaurant, right? It's happened before. And we go to a restaurant, we get seated, and man, she is the thing of highest value. There she is, the object of my affection. I look up and I'm talking to her and I look and what do I see behind her? I see one, two, three, four, about nine different TVs, all with different sports feeds on them. I've got the calves on my left. I've got golf on my right. I've got some infomercial going on over here. And what happens? To be honest, all my grand intentions for her to be the highest thing kind of get set aside. And let's be honest, what happens is that I make an exchange and she's no longer first. The exchange goes from her to whatever is happening around. And this is the problem when it comes to, to the God of our life who's supposed to be our first love and our worship of him. We make an exchange for something that is far less. And Romans 1 talks about this exchange. So let's read a little bit about it. Romans 1.18 says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Think about creation as you read this. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that so they are, we are without excuse. Creation is crying out that God is the great and to worship him. Let's keep going. 
For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Did you catch what happened there? You see that verse 23? Do you see the exchange that happens there? And it says that they even know him, right? Verse 21, they knew him on some level. Why? Because it's pre-wired. We know that he's there. We know that he's God. But they choose to make a trade, to make an exchange. And the glory that was meant for the glorious one is now shifted to this cheap substitute, to an idol. And what is their idol here? It's images of themselves, really. It's mortal man. It's animals. It's birds. Now, perhaps you're thinking, okay, I'm okay. I have not carved an idol this week, right? I was not out in my garage carving an idol, so this doesn't apply, but let's clean our lenses here and bring this to today. Idols are alive and well, and I'll say this. In our community, there are people who actually worship, bow down and worship two idols, literal idols. But for many of us, the idols look a little bit differently, right? But they are alive and well, and they're universal to all of us. We craft idols regularly. They're present in every one of our lives. Uh, Lamar Boschman, who I, who I read earlier, says an example here. A corporate executive who places a high value on his work accomplishments passionately gives himself to achieving status or influence in his job. He leaves home at 4 a.m. to beat the traffic and get to the office early. He stays late. He misses the dinner his wife has made for him. By the time he gets home, his children are already in bed, and they go through life without really knowing their father. And Boschman writes, there's a time and a place for starting early, staying late, and working hard when a company or project is in crisis or you need to meet a deadline. However, when a person repeats this behavior day after day after day after day, he is demonstrating what he values, what he worships. So let's stop and just ask a simple question here. What does your life, what what does my life repeatedly say that we worship? Follow the path of where you place your heart, your energy, your time, your money. What does it say? What's of highest value? What, What do you bow down to? Do you worship the Creator? Or have you made an exchange? Has something far less taken his place? Perhaps it's, it's yourself. Perhaps it's your work or your kids or your spouse or, or a, a, uh, maybe it's the praise of other people. I'll tell you, for me, that is an idol that I have to fight constantly in my life. Doing things for the praise of other people versus what God wants or how he's leading Well, let's talk a little bit more. Let's go to our primary passage today, John 4. And let's talk a little bit more about an exchange that happens. We're going to see just a a real vivid example of it in John 4. So we're going to be in John 4, verse 16. And for time's sake, I'm going to kind of explain the context of it to save us some time today. Uh, Jesus is traveling from Judea to Galilee, and he passes through the region of Samaria on the way. Now, Jesus, who's a Jew, he stops to get a drink at a well, and there he encounters a Samaritan woman. Now, Jews and Samaritans didn't get along, but Jesus asked her for a drink, which she was quite surprised that he, a Jew, would ask her for a drink. 
And then Jesus begins this conversation about water. They're at the well. He uses water as an illustration. He begins to talk to her about water. And he tells her he's come to bring a kind of water that will quench her thirst forever. It's a kind of, it's a spiritual kind of water, a living water that will give eternal life. And the woman says, yes, I want that. I want that in my life. Then Jesus shifts the conversation to the exchange that is happening in this woman's life. So let's look at it. John 4, 16. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband for you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. So Jesus offering this living water, he he wants her to have it, but he's got to deal with the exchange happening in her life. So what has this woman exchanged for the worship of God and made an idol out of something else? What is it? It's the relationship, right? It's a relationship. She's been assigning highest value there. She's bowing down to the idea that a relationship is going to be the thing that ultimately fills her up inside, is going to to meet this, this emptiness that she feels, the brokenness that she feels. And she keeps saying, this is going to be the one. This next one is going to be the one. Husband number one. Number two. Number three. Number four. Number five. And now, with someone else putting all her chips there. And you read this. Whenever I read this, I'm like, I feel for her. But for some of us, this connects because we've done this or we're doing it now. We've poured everything we are into a person hoping they will be the answer to meet some kind of soul thing for us. We assign highest value. Once this area gets settled in my life, it's going to be okay. But in the end, idols are shown for what they are. They're false. They're counterfeit. And there's a a promise that an idol makes, no matter what it is, whether it's your, your kids, your work, whether it's food, sex, drink, whether it's vacations. And the promise is this. This is going to cost you little or nothing. It's cheap, and it's going to bring some kind of great return in your life. It's going to bring this fulfillment. But all idols apart from Jesus end up in the same place. They end up breaking our hearts when we put our highest value in them. And God addresses this in in Jeremiah uh, with his people, the idol worship that's happening. So Jeremiah 2.11 says this, Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and they've hewed out cisterns, idols for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Now we go back to John chapter 4 and and the Samaritan woman. Jesus' intention is not to to shame her about her life. 
He's come to offer her something, but he wants her to deal with the exchange that's happened in her life. But this is likely going to be a hard transition for the Samaritan woman. She has worshipped at that idol of relationship for a long time. And know this about idols, and this is something we often overlook. Idols change who we are. They transform us. They have consequences. They have impact in our lives. Psalm 135 says, The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. The idols have mouths, but they don't speak. They have eyes, but they don't see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. There was a quote attributed to uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson. And this is the quote, a person will worship something, have no doubt about that. We may think our tribute is paid in secret in the dark recesses of our hearts, but it will come out. That which dominates our imaginations and our thoughts will determine our lives and our character. Therefore, it behooves us, what a word, huh? Come on, behooves. Wow. Therefore, it behooves us to be careful what we worship, for what we are worshiping, we are becoming. If you make money your highest value and you put it above all things and you bow to it, you will become greedy. If you make sex the highest value in your life, that it's ultimately going to bring your fulfillment, you'll become lustful. If you choose a person to invest all your energy into, thinking they're going to be the answer, you will become dependent on them. You will become dependent on that high And two people who come together, which happens a lot in marriage, thinking they're each other, they're going to meet needs, soul-level needs, they're ultimately going to end up broken without Christ at the center. You see, the idols provide like a temporary high, but they quickly reveal that they will fail. So if we're going to worship Jesus... We're going to have to face our idolatry, idolatry problem that we have. And so we've got to identify them. So what are they for you? Think about it for a second. What are the idols? What are the things that you're placing as highest value? Well, let's go back to John chapter 4 and continue the discussion here because Jesus, again, addresses her relationship idol, the exchange that's happening. And this is her response to that. She says in verse 19 to Jesus, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. You obviously know things about me. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Do you notice, <laughs> you notice the shift in the conversation here away from what Jesus is talking about? She shifts the conversation. I think Jesus has, has pinpointed something, right, in her life. And idols, they tend to fight back in our lives, right? They kind of, they're self-protective. They want, to, they want you to keep them as their idol. Kind of like Gollum in the ring, right? But Jesus goes with her in this conversation because this is ultimately a conversation about worship. 
And this is what Jesus says. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We Jews worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. So let's, let's explain this a little bit, okay? Because we, we understand this. The Samaritans worshiped on Mount Gerizim. The Jews worshiped in Jerusalem, two different locations. Why? Well, the Samaritans, you got to know their history a little bit because the Samaritans were hundreds and hundreds of years ago Jews who were not taken into captivity and they ended up marry, intermarrying with other nations who brought idol worship and other things into their religion. So the, the Samaritan religion was a mix of, of, of Judaism, of the Jewish religion, and of idol worship. And that's why the Jews had such a problem with the Samaritans. They felt like they had, had, had polluted their faith, the pure faith, the Jewish faith. Now Jesus tells her a time is coming when neither the mountain or Jerusalem is going to be the place to worship. So where is it then? Well, Jesus goes on and he says, but the hour is coming and is now here. It's here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And this is a more revolutionary statement I'm not sure you can find here, okay? This is huge. This is a historic statement because Jesus just like overturned thousands of years of temple worship with this statement here. When he says a time is coming and is now here, when worship is not about location, it's no longer about on a mountain. It's no longer in Jerusalem. It's about the inward Spirit, it's about the heart, that God wants our heart. Now, to be fair, God has always wanted our hearts. Even you go back into the time of the Israelites well before this, his complaint was that they worshiped with their lips, but not with their heart. But this is significant here because this, is, this addresses our issue of location and how we tend to view, even today, we've kind of gone backwards because we kind of look at worship as a location, don't we? It happens here in this place. We don't think as much about worshiping outside of this place. We think about it here. And Jesus says, no, it's, worship is not about location. It's about what happens in here in your heart. Talk more about that next week. Jesus also says that it is the kind of worshiper that God wants is one who worships in truth in truth. So what does that mean, to worship in truth? Well, let's look at the context that we, in, this, in this passage here. Uh, what is the woman, in the, with the woman, the Samaritan woman's life, where is she not worshiping in truth? Okay? I think a couple places. One, the honesty about who she is and where her, her priorities and her values are, because God wants us to come honestly before him. A second thing is, Samaritans, as I mentioned earlier, had polluted the one true God by bringing in idol worship. And God had changed for them. He was not the one true God 
that he was. And so to worship in truth is to worship the right things about God, the accuracy about God. Truth matters. Worshiping in truth is seeing God accurately and coming in honesty before him and who we are. In our community, there are a lot of people who worship in spirits, but they don't worship in truth. They don't worship the one true God. We have to see the true God before we can worship. Those are the kind of worshipers God tells us, this is it, this is what I want, this is what I'm seeking. And then Jesus points her back to to him the one who is the living water, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. Through Christ and in Christ, true worship is regained. It's redeemed. It's restored. So let's talk about why why is it important to worship Jesus alone? What, what's the benefit? What's the payoff for setting our highest value on him and bowing down to him? When he, when he, this is big, when he is our worship, we now become like that which we worship. And that's why as his followers, we strive to worship him because we will become like what we worship, whether it's him or whether it's something else we will become like it. So where are we with this today? How does this affect our lives here and now? We got to ask that question. What what is it? What is it that we're exchanging in our lives for the worship of Jesus? What is it? So I just want to talk about a couple ways we might be able to identify some of these idols in our lives. Because if it is really true, that they shift the conversation, that they shift the focus away from themselves, idols do, then we need to really think and explore what these things possibly are in our life that we don't even know about. Sometimes in groups, this is a great place to ask questions and to explore your lives with each other. But let's think about a couple things here. One is, what are the things that you fantasize about? Okay, When you find yourself like sitting around daydreaming, what are those things that you think about? What, what are those things that start to dictate the terms of your life? I will tell you, and this is an honest thing, I have this, this recurring thing that comes up in my life, and, and this is probably relatable. I, I think about this time someday, usually it's in retirement, right? When everything in my life will turn and serve me, I will set everything up. I will have all my money taken care of. I will have people will not bother me and everything will be focused on me. That's the thing that just kind of comes that I daydream about at times. Very unhealthy, very self-centered, okay? But that starts to dictate the terms and sometimes I don't even know it. So I'm sitting there going, oh, what am I doing? How am I preparing for retirement? What dictates that? What am I doing with my time? What am I planning for? Sometimes I start planning for my dreams and my fantasies without even really knowing it. That's how powerful the idols are in our life. Uh, Here's another thing. What do you run to? What do you run to when the hard things come? 
when things hit you, when storms come, what, what are the things you run to to escape? Instead of running to your Savior, who wants to be your comforter, wants to help you, what do you run to? Do you, do you, do you kind of numb yourself with, with entertainment, with, with food, with vacations that you're planning to avoid the pain in your life? Follow the trail. Where do you spend your time, your energy, your money? These quickly reveal idols. Let me say this too. There are good things that we have in our life, right? We've got our spouse, our kids. These are good things. And God wants us to invest in these places. So we, there's a fine line sometimes, right? When, when, when are you investing and then when does something cross that line to become an idol in your life? These are things we got to ask. These are questions we need to ask ourselves. And kind of what I, what I think is a good question to ask is, what, when, does, when does something dictate the terms for your life? So if it's your, your family schedule and your kids, when does that cross the line where it actually dictates everything that you're doing and how your life is set up? We got to ask ourselves those questions. We got to process that with other people. We have to identify and and reshift our idols back in there, back away from being number one. We have to sometimes destroy idols and replace them. You know, there are sometimes we have addictions, we have unhealthy relationships that we're engaged in that have become idols to us, and they, frankly, they just need to be destroyed in our lives. How do we do that? You know, I go back to the restaurant, right? I'm there with my wife. There's the TVs in the back, right? Sports feeds. I can't ask the restaurant to turn off the TVs, right? I can maybe switch seats with my wife, but they're probably on the back screen too somewhere. How about if I don't go there? How about if I don't go to that place when I want to make my wife the highest value? How about if I don't go to the sports bar, okay? We have to... We have to address our idols. We have to take them seriously. We will become like them. They will destroy us. We need to address them. So let's, let's talk about those unhealthy idols in our lives. Um, what did Moses, let's go back and look at, do you remember uh, when the people of Israel, uh, Moses went away and they, they built that calf, remember? They built the golden calf and, and they, they worshiped to it. And Moses comes back and finds them, and they're worshiping. Uh, it, it, listen to what Moses did with an idol. We can learn something from this. Uh, Exodus thirty-two twenty. He took the calf that they had made, and he burned it with fire. He ground it into powder, scattered it on the water, and made the people of Israel drink it. Made them drink the idol. That's how seriously he took the idol that had replaced the one true God. He did not bury it in the sand. He did not um, repurpose it. He annihilated the idol. And there are times when we need to do this. We need to identify our idol. We need to recognize the impact on their lives. We need to, to repent and to turn. And we need to replace our idols with Jesus, with the only one who can satisfy 
when you leave here today, uh, you're going to get a card when you walk out, and it looks like this, okay? And this is the illustration that I, that I used earlier. But this is a chance for you to, to think through what are those idols, and maybe there's one, maybe there's a couple of them. And I encourage you to, to go spend some time with God this week and write down what those things are in the little TVs, okay? Take them to your group. Process it with your group what those are, okay? If it is work, if work has become your God, so much so that it dictates your life and it dictates all the terms of, of what go on, write that in and process that with your group. We were designed to worship him. Sin has ruined and redirected our worship. In Christ, true worship is regained, it's redeemed, it's restored. And ultimately, for all of us, worship worship is our destiny. It's what we are headed for, to one day, in all freedom, ascribe highest value and bow down to the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, let me read Revelation chapter 4, 8 through 11. This is a future time. And the four living creatures, day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who's seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Would you bow your head with me? God, I want to pray just to start off for anyone in this room today who does not know you as their Savior and their Lord, that that they would respond to what you have put in their hearts to worship the one true God and to trust in his Son who gave his life on the cross so that we could be forgiven, so that we could have relationship with you so that we can be restored to you so that we can worship you. And God, we confess today that we are a weak people with with eyes that shift constantly, looking to, to replace you with things that are far lesser, things that appear shiny, but things that ultimately break our hearts. God, we keep coming back to you as the only one who can fulfill. And God, in this place today, we pray that idols would be destroyed and that you would be lifted up and exalted above all things, for you are the King. You are the one true God, and we love and serve and worship you today. Help us, God, to identify and to destroy the idols that are in our lives and to choose you. Amen.